Welcome to Model Rail Radio. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on Skype, April 20th, 2019. Model Rail Radio is the internet's only live recorded radio show where the topic is the hobby of model railroading. We have a real luxury today. We have a UK-friendly time, and we have on Neil Brody. Now, Neil normally calls in somewhere in the elation between... Simon Hill, somewhere around when Martin Coombs is maybe a third of the way in. So I very rarely have the chance to have an unfettered chat with Neil Brody. So, Neil, a pleasure to have you on the line. I have a number of questions for you associated with your crew, but let's start off with a model railroading update. What's been going on in the hobby with you recently? Well, over the last, uh, well, since the last um, call, we've been concentrating on getting the, the small lorries up and running because uh, we needed more for the yard and um, we needed a spare one for the Theobald yard as well. I took on the task of 3D printing the steering mechanism and some other bits and pieces for the lorry because um, it's always been done with uh, uh, metal before and that's not really my skill set. Uh, Martin, Simon and Ken are the true modelers Um I'm more on the electronics, electric side. Anyway, um, I know you're interested in 3D printing, so I had a go, and uh, it's actually worked out extremely well. Martin's, I think, posted on the page um, the example of the latest lorry we've done. The steering mechanism was a little bit difficult because somebody else had started to convert the model, um, not with a huge degree of success so we had to basically rip out and start again uh, so what you're seeing now is the result of uh, a redesign rethoughts so for folks listening in i mean obviously facebook gives wonderful photographic examples but for people listening in that don't have facebook or just want to get a sense of these models these are existing small radio controlled cars that you're disassembling and then 3d printing chassis external chassis on it right no they're scale diecast models they're not designed oh, for okay. ra- radio control they're designed they're designed really as um model pieces which you put on display cases um you wouldn't even let the youngsters play with them on the <laughs> on the floor interesting uh, they're, they're a bit too fragile for that but they're they're pretty good uh diecast models but the, the front axles are fixed uh, the rear axles again are fixed. There's no drive mechanism. So the, oh, okay. the first thing, first thing we have to do is to take out the um, rear axle, convert it to a, with a bevel gear or gearbox mm-hmm. to drive off one of these small geared motors. That's the first task. The second task is to cut away a lot of the front mm. uh, chassis so we can drop in the um, steering mechanism. Now, the steering mechanism that was being done before is mostly mostly made out of brass and um, it's it's the the accepted way of doing it. Mm -hmm. But we decided to go slightly different and say, okay, we've got 3D printers, developed a technique of printing very small parts on a standard FDM or extrusion printer. Mm. Uh, Did some experiments. The guys were happy with what was produced. So we then went the whole hog and actually converted this initial lorry. We're also converting a articulated lorry as well, mm. um, which gives slightly different uh, problems. 
because of the connection between the trailer and the and the cab. But it's all overcomable with a bit of um, experimentation, trial and error. We get there. Mm. So the choice to use existing diecast models is associated with the weight and obviously the prototypical appearance that you're looking for. But now you're adding 3D printed chassis to them. It, I'm just wondering, because there are existing radio controlled options even in the small scales, aren't there? There are, yes. There are, but they're... They're not really suitable for the models that we're we're doing. Mm. Uh, there's a, a great deal now available. Yes, you can go out and buy them and make them run around, but that's not what we're up to. We're up mm-hmm. to putting something of the era we're trying to work with. Okay. So so it's it's just the way we work. I, I guess my question is now the the external shells of these RC cars can be anything you want. So it's interesting, you, you start with the existing diecast, which is what you wanted prototypically and visually, and then the actual internal machining, previously existing brass, and it's actually fascinating that there has been a kind of cannibalizing, <laughs> cannibalizing tech associated with these particular models. Interesting, interesting. So you have three that you're working on, three diecast models that you're working on associated with moving them into the radio-controlled method that you guys need for multiple layouts now that's what you're working on currently yes well what one we've already had which um has been um, slightly modified by ken because mm-hmm. it needed um some steering adjustment the other two were basic bare chassis okay. uh, where we had to start from scratch so that's really what we've been we've been doing is is converting those chassis by putting in say the steering mm-hmm. a steering unit and a drive unit batteries charger socket so that we can run them for a whole day at an exhibition mm. so interesting so they do have to be charged at some stage through the day but obviously i guess because you're in complete control of the design you can work out you know weights and these important things as well fascinating stuff neil fascinating stuff yeah i'd like um, I'd like to be able to drag some pictures across to show you, Tom, but I don't know quite how to do that. With <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll work through it. So in terms uh, of the – so you had you had existing models that you were looking to – or at least an existing model that you were looking to replicate here. In terms of the actual logistics, this is something that I wanted to start talking about with your crew. You have, a, you have central – documents, central Google documents, web shareable documents that you work on associated with the the various components? I mean, obviously, you guys have face-to-face meetings and email correspondence as well. What kind of, uh, you know, methods were used just associated with getting these cars in the state that they are currently? Well, we generally start by taking the model, seeing how much we can take it apart, then looking around, discussing it, look at various methods we could use. Then maybe one or other of us goes off and tries something and see if that works. If it works, fine. If it doesn't, we come back and try something else. It's one of those things that each person looks at. I mean, for example, uh, when I when I look at it, I look at the um, electronics, the uh, the conversion, the drive, the mm. servo drive, the motor drive, etc. Um, and I look to fit, fit that in. Then. The others look at their attitude, their side of it, seeing how the model can be finished, painted, um, and changed. It, it just, it just sort of works as a, as a. We have a, a face-to-face meeting. We make a decision, go off, do something, come back, try it, see mm. what we think, take various bits of criticism in, um, make a change, um, and develop it from there. 
there's no it's it's very difficult to describe tom because it's not a it's not a um a procedure which you can easily put into words mm. it's it for us it just works um <laughs> we've been, we've been actually we've been having a two or three discussions to find out how we think it works um <laughs> and, and because you specifically asked the question yes. Um, and I've got my opinions, and, and well, Martin. Me, uh, look, let's let's ignore the fact that Martin's on the call. Let's put Martin aside here. What are your specific opinions associated with how this thing works? Right. Uh, well, my opinions is that first of all, that it's, it's a small group of people. You know, there's four to six. Well, there's four members, but mm. I think if you start getting too many people, then it doesn't seem to work. The other thing is that we all have specific skills, mm. um, and we all respect and understand each other's skills and we also have a general overview or understanding of each other's skills. So if we're trying to do something and we need, I need to adopt somebody else's skill, then we discuss it. We don't go off and do my thing, come what, come what may. It's, it's a shared experience. The other, the other advantage that, um, uh, we were, were talking about the other day was that we all meet in a fixed place in a workshop. Mm. In this case, it's Martin's workshop. So we actually have the practical side in front of us, so we can do things when we meet up. If we, if you meet in a in a in a cafe, restaurant, club room, or whatever, and there's nothing there, then you have this problem that you can discuss it, but you don't actually do anything, mm. um, and it's very difficult. The way we go about it, really, is that we will sit down, discuss a project, look at all the various ways of doing it, all throw ideas into the melting pot, and we'll come up with a general strategy. And then we just sort of get on with it, each person knowing which bit they're responsible for. But if we get stuck, you know, we, we talk to each other and say, mm. well, you know, can we have an opinion? We seem to get on quite well as well together as a group. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, the, I... I Obviously, belong to other organisations, and, and you know you occasionally get an awkward person that mm. that um, doesn't fit in and can be a bit of a pain, to be honest. Um, I mean, we we don't agree on everything, but Certainly. most things we we agree on, and uh, um, and it's a consensus rather than a than a, a dictatorship. Certainly, uh, I mean the the worst words that we ever we ever hear when we have a meeting is that somebody and it's usually ken comes up and said i've had an idea <laughs> um and we all look at each other and think oh goodness what's he going to come up with this time yes um and the yard was a good example of that he, yeah. he came in and he said i've got this idea um and the idea developed from a a, a very simple uh crane on three tracks to something a bit more involved which you've seen mm. and then it just it goes on there comes a point where we say no, we're not going to make any more major changes. <laughs> we, we just we just make it work. Yes. Uh, but also the other thing is we try to, to, when we do something, we tend to have a date in mind, a goal, if you like, to try mm. and meet. Uh, because if you if you have it open-ended, then it tends to wander. Certainly. Uh, Deadlines are useful uh, in some circumstances. Yeah. I, I think what I found fascinating is that you all you all come from different professions as well. And I yes. think your professional skill set and your professional philosophies come together really beautifully as well. A, a footnote for folks listening in, Martin has an alleyway entrance to his garage. Uh, what, what do you call it? The, the 
the workshop yeah. has an alleyway entrance, which I thought was a beautiful additional note that obviously you folk can congregate in the alleyway, then go into the workshop. There's, it's interesting when you're on the East Coast, you have people that have layouts in basements that have external entryways. And I think those folk tend to have a very different philosophy because everyone just meets at the basement. They don't go through the house and there's no formality in the thing. You all just kind of arrive and, uh, and start work. So an interesting footnote for the listenership associated with, uh, with Martin's uh, workshop. So in terms of planning, I mean, obviously these RC cars are a necessity, but you guys both, you do both very heavily applied work associated with now. And as you've noted, Ken has these kind of dreams for the future. He's the, uh, I guess, the visionary, for want of a better term, um, within your particular crew. Are you thinking now about the strengths that you've seen through the yard? Obviously, you've got the, you know, first Sunday in June as well, that you've got literally around the yard physically. What are you thinking about in terms of the future? Is Ken tasked with coming up with the next exciting thing, or are you all looking at the learnings that you're currently having in the yard first Sunday in June? I mean, are you kind of projecting into the future associated with what the gibbons will be on your next particular show layout? Um, yes, to to a point, we've got one or two things that are at the back of our minds mm. that we we might want to do. But um, say so at the moment, um, it's been we've been having to get ready a number of things for the exhibition we've got next weekend. Oh yes, and after that, then is the first exhibition this year for the yard. Um, and then we'll be back on to the first Sunday in June. Because that really needs now to be pushed ahead. Yes. It's very difficult to work on that layout during the winter months mm. um, for various reasons. But uh, now the summer at the moment over here has really arrived. Um, <laughs> we can sort of get on with it. But there are one or two things sort of on the back burner that we're thinking about. But we don't tend to try and do too many things at once because otherwise you end up by not really completing anything. Certainly. Certainly. Mm. Do you think you folk will ever do a live Steam show layout? Is that even a potential in the UK to do live Steam show layouts? Um, something I I haven't thought about. Maybe Martin's thought about well, we'll it. We'll come to but, Martin uh, in a minute. But now I was just thinking, associate. I mean, how first Sunday in June, the carousel. You're going to need something pretty special to beat that thing in the future. I mean, you're going to have to have really quite amazing technology to move beyond the carousel in terms of general show appeal. So I'm just thinking in terms of your skill sets, what you have currently. I've always had a, I've always liked seeing live steam layouts at shows. In particular, you know, obviously there are environmental restrictions in various areas and what have you. But it is a fascinating draw card, particularly when you look at, you know, highly detailed ON30 and all the other, you know, draw cards that I see in the US. But, um, you guys have the necessary smarts to put something like that together. So maybe I could just seed that as a potential future idea. Perhaps far too crazy. Perhaps beyond Ken in terms of these things. <laughs> I wanted to ask you one final thing before uh, I get to Martin. Were you involved with the uh, magazine photo shoot at all that went on uh, a week or so ago? No, no. That was, the, you mean the, the one with um, uh, Denton Brook? The, mm. the, 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 no, I... Um, Martin and Ken were the ones that attended okay. that show. My only involvement with that particular layout was I did some of the electrics for it. Right. Um, but I don't, I don't actually operate that layout. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. 
Well, Neil, you know how we do things. Thank you very much for calling in first. I think this is a strategy that uh, will need to be employed in the future because it's wonderful to get a full update from you. And uh, no doubt Martin is crossing things off his list of, uh, of things to talk about. But Neil, a real pleasure to talk with you. And look, my plan is, because the time in London is looking more like it's actually going to be very relatively easy going, let's just say relatively easy going, my plan is to come down and visit you folk again uh, when I'm in the UK at the end of August. So no pressure with regards to any progress on uh, existing layouts or uh, future projections. But I always enjoy catching up with you folks. So hopefully you'll be able to... Uh, to be there, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to catch up then. Okay. I'll talk to you soon, Neil. Take care. Following Neil, I would like to welcome on Martin Coombs. Martin, you were part of this photo shoot. I think it was amazing that, uh, that Ken was in front of the camera. In fact, I think it was a really wise choice on everyone's part to make Ken the face of... Uh, of your particular crew. In terms of the magazines, you guys do get periodic coverage for the stuff that you do in the UK, right? Yeah, we've uh, appeared in uh, quite a few magazines. Uh, Ken's layout, the uh, halfway, his layout his has appeared in Model Rail magazine, and I think it's appeared in Voila Libre, mm -hmm. uh, which is a French Model Railway mm -hmm. magazine. Uh, my layout I used to exhibit, White Oak has been in Railway Modeler, mm -hmm. Model Rail, uh, Voila Libre, uh, and there was a Dutch magazine whose name escapes me at the moment, mm. uh, and apparently appeared in a German magazine Gosh. Uh, at some point. So White Oak's uh, been about a bit. Uh, so I've, I've experienced a, a few photo shoots, uh, <laughs> and they're, they're all slightly different. Yeah. The, the one that we we had one photo shoot with White Oak, we was at uh, an exhibition at Utrecht, and the magazine photographed it at the show, but uh, they took a hell of a long time. There was about two hours. Gosh. Um, and they bought uh, all their lighting and camera work and, oh, yeah. and barriers to keep people back and stuff. And it was a bit frustrating because they were taking so long because people had come to view the layout and they couldn't see it because yes. of this photographer, Yes, which was uh, a bit frustrating. But the, the layout last weekend that was being photographed, that was being photographed by Railway Modeler magazine. Mm -hmm. And that's our friend's layout, Giles Favel, and that's uh, uh, Den Denton Brook, which is where we first came across the uh, ability to convert uh, seven mil scale lorries mm. to radio control. Mm. Uh, he's really pioneered that sort of work. Uh, and it was the Rowie Modeler who were, were photographing that on the Sunday morning, but they came an hour before the show opened. No, that was so smart. I mean, exactly yeah. the opposite of what you were describing associated with the with blocking views and this kind of stuff. Well, interesting. It's really hard to describe. Whenever I get to the UK, I'll just take a photograph of a magazine stand and post it to Model Rail Radio because it's really hard, particularly for folks in the US that have a very, I don't know, a relatively myopic view about the magazine options. The UK breaks that open. Obviously, as you noted, there are European magazines as well. Uh, but yeah, Model Rail Radio is certainly very well catered for in every uh, news agent that one finds in the UK. So... I always like to post one of those to Mobile Rail Radio just to remind folks that, uh, yeah, it's an interesting community in the UK. I mean, every aspect of it is distinctly different. I had a, a friend from uh, the Bay Area who lives relatively close to me who was just in England by chance for his work and uh, came across a, a historical live steam exhibit just at the railway station. And I said, you know, that is just relatively common in the UK. I've, I've experienced it in Yorkshire. I've experienced it 
in a variety of different locations that, uh, you know, the hobby is strong and represented in a variety of different ways in the UK. Anyway, Martin, let us talk a little bit associated with the stuff that you're doing. And also, as I've talked to Neil about a little earlier, in terms of your particular perspective, why do you think your group is so successful associated with communication, associated with getting things together and, and not treading on each other's toes, most importantly? I think, first off, we're quite a small group, mm. which minimizes the potential for clashes, disagreements, etc. We all have our own, as Nils touched on, our own core set of skills, and we have an understanding of each other's set of skills mm -hmm. and an appreciation. And between us, we can uh, work out and, and solve the problems. We are also, we must say, we are all very fortunate in what we have available to ourselves in terms of space, Mm -hmm. tools machinery mm -hmm. we do re realize that and, and, and we are lucky um, it, it's if we didn't have that uh, ability i mean my shed for a start and workshop if we didn't have that oh okay we could work it we could get me to ken's actually he's got more than enough, <laughs> enough space but you know and, and simon's got that beautifully equipped uh engineering workshop mm -hmm. For, for producing stuff, which you've seen. Certainly. Neil's got all his computer stuff and the 3D printing and and all his electronics equipment. So we are massively fortunate mm -hmm. to have all of that uh, at our fingertips, which means mm -hmm. we are fairly much self-sufficient on anything we should require, which is which is a great help. And, and we have a, a place to have a regular meeting. We're not reliant on hiring a hall somewhere or meeting in the corner of a pub or a restaurant uh, to, to catch up. We try to discipline ourselves to have a regular meeting. Mm. And this, I think, helps. Because sometimes you, you may not even fancy wanting to meet one week, but you do still meet because quite often other things come out and, and, and we can pro progress things quite quickly. Mm. We also progress things between the meetings. So there's, there's not dead space. Um, and we use group emails. If we email about an issue between two of us, we'll copy in the other two mm -hmm. so that, uh, A, they are aware of what we're saying and, and what we're discussing. And B, they may well also have an input that we hadn't considered. Because mm. quite often you can have a problem and you can't see the wood for the trees. Certainly. Someone looking from without, from outside of the problem can sometimes see a, a completely different angle that hadn't occurred to you. So mm. we've, and this also gives us a complete, what a paper chase, a, a, a document trial. Mm -hmm. So it, it is documented within emails. We also use Dropbox mm -hmm. and Within Dropbox, we subdivide it into folders for each layout or project we're working on. So we can also share content in there. Uh, we'll produce a document about something. It could be a Word document. It could be an Excel file. It just could be a series of photographs or illustrations. Mm. And we'll put them all on Dropbox. So, again, everybody uh, – the, the folders in Dropbox are shared. So when you put something in, there's the usual notification that goes off to the individuals that something's been put there. But it's also a central repository for information that we've got. Uh, some of the information is now not relevant because layouts have evolved. Mm. First Sunday June has lots of documentation and initial drawings and, and bits and pieces in there that we've moved on from. But it is occasionally nice to go back through and look at them because you forget how much something has evolved. So we're using uh, physical meetings and we're using meetings through the ether, shall we say. <laughs> Mm. Uh, and this sort of digital cloud community, uh, and 
that seems to work work well for us and and we we get these and within our own spheres we'll go off and and research little bits and pieces that we can bring back to the group uh and and it it's spread to the workload there are times on certain projects that some one person will be a lot more busier than all the others Mm. because of that's the nature of the, the thing it's like the lorries at the moment obviously neil's been very busy on the lorries because there's been a, a lot of electronics and bits and pieces uh, to go into it. Ken was busy at the early stage because he was hacking them to bits mm. to release the bits so that they could be motorized. Uh, for me, it comes at the latter stage when I do the pretty bit of changing the colors and, and weathering them and making them look the part. But it, it, it all works. And occasionally, and we'll also have projects that run in parallel. Mm. So although things will be working on the, uh, the, the lorries, uh, for the yard, uh, I've been, for example, uh, painting the new controller holders and stuff. So, because that'll be wanted in a few weeks. But also this week, because Fearbold Yard is going out next weekend to a show, which we normally used to take out in two trailers mm. uh, on with cars. But unfortunately, Ken is, well, fortunately, unfortunately, he's on holiday uh, at the, the next show. So we're a trailer down. Mm. So that that made us look at the trailers we had, and we we worked out that we could rack out one of the trailers and get the vast majority of the layout in just one trailer. Certainly. So while other things have been going on, we've also been converting trailers in parallel <laughs> uh, with, with other projects, which is it, it's always been a necessary evil. We put it off to the last minute, <laughs> and also waiting for the better weather, which has been cracking weather, mm. just like so. It's been ideal. So, but we've now done that. But we, we, we fitted out the trailer with uh, Dexion, which is a bit like giant Meccano, effectively. Yes. So it's easily adjustable and adaptable for other layouts. Wonderful. So, so because when, when racking out, this is a lot of our projects, we also uh, we have an end goal in mind. So whatever we're doing, we've always got the end aim. Yes. So we, always, we knew with the trailer that the trailer would have to take different layouts. So whatever racking we did, it had to be adaptable. So Dexion, this this uh, adjustable racking, which is just like Meccano, you can unbolt it, move it, bolt it in mm-hmm. and stuff. We've, we've built that into the trailer at the outset. Had we have not had the end goal of it's going to be used for a number of layouts for exhibitions, we could have just done a fixed shelving system mm. just to suit the one layout. But then later down the line, when you get other layouts, you've now got a problem of Certainly. you've got a fixed system. So there's elements of that that go on. Uh, so with all our projects, we always have a target. And as Neil said, uh, uh, a date is also very useful. Well, as things have a habit of, of going on, and we have target dates of next weekend and May the eighteenth because we needed more lorries. Mm. So that's why the, the the emphasis has been put on making the lorries, uh, adapting the lorries, uh, and, and, and working on on that side of things. So yes, that's uh, sort of basically how we we work, and, and we gel as as a group, as, as individuals. We Certainly. just, we just we just all get on. Yeah, uh, most definitely. Most definitely. It doesn't always happen. I mean, uh, we also belong to a big model railway club, which has over 50 members. Hmm. Uh, and that itself has an issue with, for example, the layout we're taking out next week requires eight people hmm. to go out with it. Finding You would think finding eight people in a club of 50 members to go out with the layout would be fairly straightforward. and it, it isn't. No. And it's problematic. So this is another thing with our layouts. We design them so that they can be operated with three to four people maximum yes so then we're only reliant on ourselves to take the layout out we're not reliant on bringing in other help uh, to help the layout 
And also, you can't just grab anyone to help with a layout. They need to be a, a particular type of person. In that they, <laughs> under, they understand that when you're exhibiting a layout, you really are there to put on a show for people who have paid to come in and see it. Yes. You're not there to sort of just chat with your mates and, and you might, you might run a train in a minute. You might not. You, yes. you can't do that. Cause you, you, when you exhibit a layout, you quite often find that you, we've watched this quite a lot where people walk up and you may only have a five second opportunity, sorry, five second time space of opportunity that if nothing's sort of moving within that, they'll just turn away and walk mm. away. Mm. It could well be you're you're working frantically behind the scenes yes. to get something out onto the scene, and, and just as it comes out in the tunnel, they that's when they turn their heels and walk away, and you think, oh no. So you, you need people who are can get can work it well and operate allow at sensible speeds, yes. not tearing around. And with the things with our lorries, we we put a lot of emphasis on our lorries. And yes, you can buy radar controlled vehicles off the shelf, but they tend to be quite fast yeah and 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 radar control where we need the lorries to run really slowly certainly and smoothly and accurately because as, as you'll appreciate as you had with the you saw with the gantry crane you know we've got to position these lorries accurately realistically into the scene un, under our crane so it's important to us and, and and in the real world lorries don't go hurtling around the roads certainly uh, when they're sort of driving around factories and, and reversing for positioning. Yes. And it's the, it's the same with the crane. Our crane, as, as you know, it, it works prototypically slowly. Uh, My so thought with the radio-controlled cars was not associated, obviously, with the uh, existing speeds or technology, but it's. It, I guess my thought was you're going to such a level associated with the other machining parts to actually have take out the motor and the gearbox perhaps but to actually have an existing chassis i mean it just seems like an amazing amount of work that you're putting in but as you've noted this is work in part that you've already done before but yeah it just it strikes me as uh, so much knowledge that you guys need to have associated with how to do this uh in a very particular fashion which obviously you've you've distilled in documents and and move on um uh, periodically to to new builds but yeah, for folks listening in, I mean, do you see this as being future articles online? How do you carry on this information to other people that might be interested in doing the same thing? We obviously document what we do on various forums uh, so people can see how we've got by with, with things. So we're, we're quite happy to share sort mm-hmm. of information. We share it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a friend, uh, Giles, who... We originally had the experience of the radio-controlled vehicles, and he is, I believe, writing a book uh, at this moment on exactly how to do this. Okay. Uh, because, and I, I don't know if Neil touched on it earlier, but things like the steering mechanism on lorries, it has to be just right. You have to have the pivot point as tight into the wheel as you can Yes. for it to act properly. Otherwise, your wheel, uh, your Instead of pivoting a wheel, it would rotate in an arc, which is Certainly. crazy. And it would look wrong. You would hit the mudguards or the chassis of the vehicle. But there's also things, uh, I think it's called Ackerman angles or something. Hmm. It's the steering arm. There, there are specific angles you have to have the steering arms to come out at yes. for it to steer properly and, and, and stuff like that. So he will be going, I believe, into that sort of detail on, on how stuff should be done. The, uh, the, 
very, I mean, there's some beautiful uh, motor gearbox units you mm. can get off eBay these days from China for yes. just a couple of pounds. Uh, and they're phenomenal and immensely powerful. I mean, Giles, uh, I think I've probably posted a video at some point. He built the uh, a lorry crane, mobile crane, which has working stabilizers, the lorry drives, it steers, the crane uh, cab slews rounds, mm-hmm. you've got a lifted jib, you've got a lifting hook. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a phenomenal piece of work. But I know when he was first setting that up, he had a thing where the there was an electrical issue with the radio. He, ha- he hadn't shut the motor off. And the motor was so powerful, these little motors, which are only sort of uh, 8 mil in diameter by about 15 mil long. And this gearbox, it actually screwed up and crunched up the whole crane jib because it was that powerful. Uh, so <laughs> you had to rebuild the jib on that. But, but these are available just for a few pounds. Mm. And and these are the things that uh, the the ones we've shown in the on Facebook in the pictures of the lorries we've recently done those N20 gearbox uh, units are beautiful pieces of kit for not a lot of money and they've also our friends been fitting them into uh, locos for mm. radio controlled locos as well so that you know they can run off a 3.7 volt battery they run beautifully slowly there's no problem with electrical pickup uh, so I, I think. Yes, we will be doing more with radio control because mm. we found, in fact, not to have something outside of the railway environment working as well, it isn't going to tick the boxes for us anymore. Mm. Just, to have, just to have a rail-only layout and mm. a bit of shunting and stuff, that, that doesn't do it. We need to have the additional, and we, you know, we've, we've used the cranes and bits and pieces. We've Well, Ken's one of his uh, ideas, which he's working on at the moment, is to replicate his own line, which you've, mm-hmm. you've experienced. And uh, point at uh, one point we'll be replicating is the tipping skips, mm-hmm. but also his digger mm-hmm. that he's got. So the mini digger, we, we've, we had, we've had some initial chats uh, during our tea breaks, uh, the workshop, uh, looking at how we can motorize a, a digger. We've, we've got hold of a die-cast model digger, which uh, I think I've, I think I paid four ninety nine for it. One of these local <laughs> shops at the south, yes. and it was one of the things I saw. I thought that's not far off the size of what we need. Yes. So we've got that as a starting point. It may well be we'll adapt that. It could well be we discard that completely because we'd have to rebuild so much of it. Certainly, we might as well build the entire thing from scratch. Yes. So, I, I guess that's my next question. I mean, certainly what you described with regards to the diecast cars and Neil described indicates that. If so much of it is being rebuilt, there has to come a critical point where you just think, well, maybe we should actually do all of this through, like, you know, some shared internals, which are, you know, 3D printed or this kind of stuff. So, yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. Yeah, it's, it's the bodies are the hardest bit. Mm. Uh, although it's a lot easier now with 3D printing, and especially with these uh, SLA printers, I think they are, and the resin ones. Certainly. You can get that sort of degree of quality uh, so, yeah, we're not far off completely scratch building. The only real issue is probably things like rubber tires, yeah. which is what you want. But I've, I've looked on the various car modeling forums and things, and they seem to be available in abundance anyway for that market. Yeah, you can get soft extrusion materials as well. So you should probably be able to 3D print something. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be rubber. It's going to be rubber-ish. But, yeah, there are many potential uh you know, possibilities there as well. A question which I gave to Neil, I will also ask you, Martin. 
in terms of the future, once you come out with First Sunday in June, once the carousel is live, once everyone's seen that at the show, it becomes kind of old at, oh, they're bringing out First Sunday in June again. Where do you go from there? I mean, is, is internal live steam a possibility? I'm thinking gunpowder effects. I mean, where do you take it after First Sunday in June becomes a, a commonplace at local shows? Uh, yeah, the live, what you said on the live steam, uh, in a, uh, realistic scenery layout, that, that's always an injury. There is a very, very good layout in the UK that already does that. Mm. Uh, I think it's called Hambledown something. Mm. I can't remember. I've seen it a couple of times now. It, it's beautifully scenically modeled. Yes. But it, it uses radar controlled live steam and they use slow mos. Yes. So that's how they get the real beautiful slow running. Yes. Uh, so we sort of thought about doing that, but then the one thing that's putting us off that is it's been done. Yes. Well, I'm, so, I, guess, I guess my question is, what hasn't been done? Like, I mean, maybe you can't break this first on model rail radio, but I mean, obviously, once you've come out with First Sunday in June, once that has become a commonplace in your local shows, you're really lifting the bar on your, your crew, right? Yeah, we've probably made a rod for our own backs, in all honesty. <laughs> <laughs> Both figuratively and literally, yes. Yeah, it, I, a lot will depend on technology. Uh, I, I suspect, I mean, I'm always, uh, I sort of, I saw something on holograms once. Mm. Uh, we haven't got uh, the technology within us at the moment, but things that fascinate me is uh, having holograms of, bod of humans mm. that you could project onto a layout. Mm. So you could have walking figures yes. on, on a layout. And it, it sounds sort of pie-in-the-sky stuff. But I, I remember back in the days when I used to read Beano magazine, I think it was, <laughs> there was a there was a, a young guy, I forget what the, the, strip, the strip was called, but he had a little army of, of tanks mm. and soldiers, which were radio remote-controlled. Yes. And I remember as, as a kid thinking, that would be absolutely fantastic to be able to do that, but it's obviously impossible. And in... in Many years ago, it was impossible, yes. but but here we are today doing it. So I don't know. It, it's this curved screen technology that's going on. These these rollout screens that are yes. coming out uh, that opens up the whole back scene yes. side of things. Uh, I think more can be done with sound. I think Certainly. there's more to be done with animation. Uh, we haven't even touched on smell. Yes. You know, the, 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 the aroma of coal, uh, if you've got uh, a harbour layout, uh, the, the smell of the, the, the sea, the water, uh, actually modelling water. Mm. The real water doesn't mm. act in a model form very no. well. It, it's in films. They, I think it's they slow it down, don't they, the filming yes. or something, or, or they speed, film it quickly and then slow it down so it looks better. I did see a layout, uh, I think it was at the Crawley show last year. They had a... Uh, sort of harbour dock scene type layout in O-Gage. Mm -hmm. And they had the, uh, during the course of uh, an operating session, the dock would drain. Mm. So the tide went out. Mm. But they, I didn't get a chance to talk to them, but I read about it later. They had used a thickening agents, agent, yes. I think, in, in the water. So it reacted better in a model form. Yes. And that's quite interesting. Uh, I mean, I, on White Oak, that, had, that was a dock scene. And, and the center stage was a, a, a trawler ship that was for unloading. And it was always static, which is something that sort of jarred a bit with me. But then uh, 
a guy at the rugby club. It was when uh, was it Arduinos or whatever they're called yes. first started coming out, <laughs> and he was he was tinkering with one of those. And I said to him, "I'd like my boat to rock. Is there a way you could program sort of two or three servos in a sort of uh, random, very slightly tipping and rocking mode?" Yes. And he said, "Leave it with me." And a couple of weeks later, he came back with <laughs> an Arduino with it all done. Mm. Uh, it, it, unfortunately, I never got around to fitting it onto the layout because it wasn't that long after that I retired it mm-hmm. off the show circuit. But it would enable me to have a boat. I wanted it so that it was just barely perceptively moving yes. to such a degree that people aren't immediately obvious it's happening until they're looking at layout and then seriously suddenly, looking at it. Yes. Yeah. And then it draws them. Hey, actually, that boat is just in the way a boat would rock mm. and just sort of float about there. So, yeah. I've, there's lots of potential, and and I, I to be honest, I don't even think we've seen the beginning of what is possible, mm. and especially with a sort of a bit of an interaction. I was always I was interested, though, like the blue rail stuff. Something seems to be going on and is going to come out at some point. Let us I was fascinated. Yes, I was, face, I was always fascinated by blue rail in that possibility of the interaction within it. Certainly, and I can't help feeling there's some development in sort of gameplay role play type mm-hmm. stuff that, that that can happen so rather than have a cgi thing that you're playing or, or something on your computer you're doing a similar type of thing but it's there in front of you in 3d mm. and yeah there's 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 got to be there's definitely more stuff to do so that's for sure quite what it'll be yet <laughs> i'm not entirely sure but well, we'll think of something yeah yes you probably will your crew probably will. Ken will probably come up with some crazy idea. But, yeah. Now, it is interesting, the use of subtle movement as a means of drawing people in. Because, obviously, you know, it, it would be easy to make a boat that rocked furiously and looked like it was in some kind of tornado. But, as you say, the use of subtlety with regards to movement, sound, as, as you noted, even potentially smells. I mean, I think, um, you know, smoke machine, what's it called? Uh, propylene glycol or whatever they're now you know pumping that full of a variety of different smells so it, all that technology is there um yeah fascinating times man always a pleasure chatting with you i it looks like my time in the uk is going to be a little bit more leisurely than i had originally anticipated so i'm well i'm penciling in certainly the potential of on a few days of, of coming down and saying hello to you folk so sometime towards the end of august i will be back in your neck of the woods and uh, no pressure with regards to getting things up and running for me. It's just a pleasure catching up with you, folks. Well, yeah, it'd be, it'd be good to see you with a, a bit more time on your hands, Tom. Yes. Can, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get you down to Bregar so you can be wonderful. Uh, see what we play with down there. And hopefully I would have done a bit, well, I'm hoping I, I would have done a bit more on the garden railway as well. <laughs> so there's a bit, bit more to play with as well. Yes. Well, I'm also useful for cleaning up areas. Certainly Craig Biscay utilized me to uh, to clean up and uh, get stuff ready for uh, a, a series of folk that were coming through and seeing his layout. So, yeah, feel free to use me for, uh, you know, other <laughs> other purposes <laughs> as well. Uh, but always a pleasure catching up with you. Wonderful catching up. We still need to get on Simon. Simon has escaped today. Maybe we'll get him on at a future recording uh, because yeah. I've certainly got a lot to discuss with him associated with his layout. But please pass on my regards to all. Please pass on my regards to Ken and Simon. I look forward to talking to you soon. Take care. And you, Tom. Thank you.
I'd like to welcome on a gentleman who I haven't had a chance to speak to for a while, but I do keep connected to remotely thanks to his periodic YouTube updates. Mike Deverell, your layout is moving into an interesting phase. Can you talk a little bit more about the stuff that you've been doing recently? Well, it's uh, we uh, finished up a complete rewire of this, the layout, mainly because we're working on getting JMRI working. Mm. So I uh, installed probably... I think it's like 30 sensors into the layout. So Gosh. that required a little rewiring to get it all connected. And in terms of that, because obviously uh, I was talking with Stuart Baker uh, relatively recently, what kind of stuff do you need to do to get a layout moved towards JMRI? And obviously you've got open LCB and a wide variety of other possibilities as well. What, what kind of effort was involved there? Did you have to rewire the entire thing or were you just adding more wire? More like adding more wire. Okay. Um, so the difference between wiring a layout to run, which is just two wires in the world of DCC, you just you know hook them up and then you can run your trains. But the difference when you're going to get it ready for operations or something like that, you have to have a way for your dispatchers or whatever to know exactly where those trains are at. So doing that meant that I had to separate segments or, or within my blocks so I could detect where a train was at. And so by by using, in this case, I used uh, basically NCE's uh, system, uh, which is uh, by current detection. And it just ended up having to put in additional wires so I could isolate uh, segments of those tracks so that the detectors were just detecting just that portion of the track. So that ended up adding, oh, well, matter of fact, I had my dad come out and we did a YouTube channel here recently. And I think I said there was like about 3,600 feet of wire into the layout. <laughs> Very good. Um, and, and it is growing. I mean, mm. as we just keep working on more stuff, I'm like, Oh, I need to wire that. So before too long, I'm, I, I will have a small investment in copper. Very good. It's, it's a good thing to invest into. I was at Simon Hill's layout, even though he hasn't been on for, for the previous two UK friendly uh, timeframes. He, it's amazing, actually, the amount of wire you need to put in for, you know, considering JMRI, considering OpenLCB. It's a fascinating problem, which I think I was, uh, I'm frequently reminded by CMRI, I think that's it, which is yep. uh, Bruce Chubb's standard. And that was very much designed around minimizing the amount of wire that was necessary. We seem to be moving in a different direction. Do you think it's, I mean, what's your projection for the future with regards to this kind of problem? Well, you know, I, originally I, I would have liked to have open LCB on my layout uh, or LCC or whatever is currently the standard that they're looking at. But I had already started, and as such, um, I ended up using uh, dual DCC systems so that I could actually accomplish the same project. Mm. Um, and so that did create a little more wire. But I could see with open LCB or, or um, LCC that both of those would reduce it some. But no matter what you do, you still have an individual sensor that's going to have to have a pair of wires going to it. Certainly. There's just no way around it. Um, and the same holds true if you're lighting up a building or anything like that. So I think that while for the average model layout builder that's probably not doing this kind of stuff, it's not that not that difficult and it doesn't have to be but if you're going to point signals in there you're going to have sensors you're going to have other stuff yeah you're just going to have a lot but lcc would reduce it because you're just pulling cat5 wire through 
which is one of the reasons why I went with NCE for my sensors, because I'm basically just pulling cat five wire between the uh, the auxiliary units that, that receive. I think one of them controls like 16, I think it's 16 sensors. And so I just pull all those wires into that one location and it just connects by a cat five wire back to the uh, to the uh, to the uh, command module. So that's kind of helpful in that respect. Um, so you can reduce wire that way, but you still, no matter what you do, you're, you're going to have a lot of wires. So just it, even with, with, with Simon's doing even these smaller layouts, mm. you know, you really sit and think about it to have motions or to have all these type of things that, that you were just discussing. That's really going to involve, uh, quite a bit of wiring just to get Arduinos working. What so, fascinates me about this, and I mean, this kind of factors into some of your professional life as well. But certainly Seth Newman in my part of the world, who basically, you know, wrote the book with regards to a wide variety of the telecommunications protocols. Mm -hmm. Whenever he approaches a layout and he approaches a number of them, he puts in project management and, you know, documents and, you know, all the things that he's taken from his professional career, he moves into the hobby of model railroading. So the layouts that he works on literally have, you know, it's it's like... um, it's like Marbell, really. They have manuals, yeah. basically, that he creates. Uh, and, I mean, a lot of it's pre-populated with stuff. But to see that is fascinating and to get a sense. I mean, obviously, we have on uh, Jim Gifford periodic. Jim Gifford's layout as well is as much a project management thing as it is a railroad. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy with regards to the documentation and these kind of things as well? Well, let me explain how many ways you can do it wrong. That would be an easier discussion. But uh, So that was part of the reason why I ended up rewiring a lot of the stuff that was going on. Was not that, you know, when you're the layout owner and you're doing a large layout, you have help. Mm-hmm. And when you have help, you don't always have complete control over everything, right? You, you, you kind of are trusting your, your crew to do certain things. And when I was going back through some of this, it was not that anyone had done anything wrong, but it was apparent that I just didn't have the correct documentation. And so part of the rewiring with the sensors and all, I really sat down and spent a lot of time documenting mm. and and putting the drawings into it so that the next time I had to come back, uh, I, I could actually, you know, get it together. And it, it's become apparent even in JMRI, I have now... Uh, couple word docs full of notes of how I how I you know program something or, or wired something in JMRI so that I I can come back to it again later on and go okay you know what did I do mm. um, <laughs> and, and I I can't express enough how important that is especially I mean you probably if you had a, a an average size or a small layout you could probably get away with a little less but you know just like we talked about earlier if you've got all these movements you're going to have to keep track of where all these wires are going and how they connect together um in fact i was looking at i think it was simon i think it was simon that uh, that uh, he had put some some uh brass levers for for controlling turnouts or something mm. I'm, i think that's what he was doing he had them posted on the the facebook page mm-hmm. and i sent simon a message i said can you send me some drawings of that and he says no i didn't draw them up and all that and i'm like okay well i've got photos i can i can work on it so i basically rebuilt what he did with the brass in mm. a 3d printer well that involved me actually keeping track of notes as i've all of a sudden had six seven eight different <laughs> 
prototypes in front of me. I'm like, what does this go to? So uh, the documentation just becomes so important because you're going, you know, it's not our full-time job. It is a hobby. And so we periodically do take a break from it. And when we come back, if you don't have the notes, you're not going to have a clue where you were at and you're going to spend five, six hours trying to figure it out. It is interesting how documentation becomes a critical part. And I guess we have on folks that have small but detailed layouts. And where do you actually, I mean, I think you give the example of how to do it, as as you note, in some way, jovially, the wrong way, but actually is probably still uh, a relatively good starting point for, for a number of folks. In terms of the breadth of documentation that you have, is it all electronic? Is some of it physical? Would you pass it to someone? As they come, came. To, I mean, you have a crew. Does your crew yep. share electronic documents, or is it paper documents? How does this work out? Well, let's let's take a look at what different type of documentation I have. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, um, the actual building of the layout, or the CAD drawings, or or where the track work, or, or different objects like that. Yeah, those are CADs uh, on the back of the um, the main door when you walk in. After when you guys see me open the door on the video when I walk in, on the back of that is literally the entire layout uh, drawn out in CADs, and they're they're probably three feet long by 24 inches wide, and you can just take and untape them from that wall, and you can we can pull them up and look them up. And that has, for instance, where the track is going, what was the idea. Um, signals are already drawn out. I had a, a good friend of mine uh, who used to be a modern railroad editor, uh, Paul Schmidt. He, uh, he drew because he works for the BNSF right now um, as a signal maintainer. He helped me, you know, plan my signals on my layout. So those those drawings and all are, are present. So from a layout perspective, the building of it, we have drawings for that. The wiring is not in a hard copy unless we are working in that area. Then I can simply just pull up that Word document, print it up, and, and here it is. And on there would be, for instance, with the wiring what color goes to what block, what, you know, what signals are there, what, what is attached to it, what's in this particular uh, power district. So those type of details are really helpful and, and setting a standard. So the very first page says each of the power districts is controlled by this much power and has this available to it. And it's just really helpful going through that type of stuff. Color coding, uh, color coding wires, I know, uh, as I had, you know, and I've been modeling for over 40 years, the habit of just going to the store and buying wire changes. You just have to change that, that mindset and, and kind of set yourself a standard that, for instance, on my layout, you see a pair of red and white, red and black wires twisted together. That is 12 volts DC, period. You can reach up there, find that red and black wire, and they're twisted together. That's 12 volts. The 5 volts typically is red and white. Um, so just different things like that, that you're going to use as a standard. Um, and that's just helpful for when you're sitting under there and you're working on something to, to kind of pick that up. So there's those standards that you're going to write. And then the software standards that we deal with and, and notes on that, That's I don't think I've ever printed any of that up. Uh, it's just basically a Word doc that just reminds me, for instance, all of my uh, sensors, the auxiliary boards, they have different um, addresses for 
you know, their throttle addresses on the NCE. So I have to have a note there that says these throttles are not available because they're being used for sensors. So those type of notes I, I have to keep track of because if somebody comes into the layout and decides to use their phone and they get assigned that throttle number or or, or something like that, that's going to create a problem. So th- those are the types of things that we keep notes on though with the software. Um, and then you use software just to keep track of, of different things. Um, I'm using a program. I don't remember the name of it, but it just keeps track of all my inventory, um, track car numbers. Um, also, are they have they met the standard that I'm holding for my layout, which I have. I'm using um, model. Uh, what am I trying to think of? Uh, model Railroad Hobbyist, the editor, is doing the uh, books on it. Uh, I can't think of his name. But he set some standards for rolling stock, and mm. I basically just printed that up and added that, took that, and added just a couple additional lines. For instance, um, all of my railroad cars have RFID chips put into them. Mm-hmm. So I have to keep track of those RFID chips, what car is assigned with what, and and keep track of that because that's how I'm managing the cars on the layout, too. And the same with locomotives and cabooses. So all that documentation is the kind of documentation that I'm creating and, and holding. And it's a necessity. There's no way I could manage 300 cars or or 50 locomotives or, or anything else without having that kind of documentation. Mm. Fascinating stuff, Mike. Fascinating stuff. I think it's a part of the hobby which is not particularly glamorous, right? But it's no. absolutely critical when you start getting anything to a point of scale. And while we haven't really been able to ask the what scale, what, at what scale does this make the right sense, it seems to be something where if you were considering... I mean, it's interesting. Simon's Loud isn't actually that big physically. At most, it would be, I don't know, maybe 48 feet worth of track in a relatively, yeah. you know, relatively tight quarters, but still doable. Not a huge space. But even within that space, based on the stuff that he wants to do, it requires procedures, you know, as you've described. So interesting to think about, and certainly for the listeners who are considering a slightly larger than, you know, shelf layout, it might be worth starting these practices early, because as you say, getting to them slightly later and having to work backwards is never really ideal. So interesting stuff. Well, I ended up, yeah, just the rewiring, um, it took me... Five weeks, uh, and that's somewhat unfair because, you know, I when I say five weeks, um, five weeks of just remapping everything and getting it all set up and then starting the process of mm. putting the sensors in. So I could have saved myself five weeks worth of work. Mm. That's that's a lot of modeling time that, that gets wasted. Certainly. So, yeah, that's very true. Very true. Well, hopefully you can learn so others can follow in this circumstance. Because yeah, I think <laughs> it's interesting actually. Because I mean, certainly talking talking with uh, you know Martin and Neil, getting to a point where you're doing the right practices, oftentimes takes these kind of mistakes um, to, to learn from. But yeah, interesting times, interesting times, Mike. So in terms of the layout, now you've got some of this infrastructure in. What are the plans? I mean, just. Does it just shut down over the summer months? What are you thinking in the next uh, well, you know, six months? Right now, uh, two major projects are, are going on on the uh, layout. Uh, Sean is finishing up the uh, boiler house for the sugar mill, 
And once that gets done, that end of the layout will be finalized. We'll get the last of the track done, and we will start sinking that end of the uh, of the uh, layout there on that peninsula. I'm also, at the same time, working on building Longmont Foods, which is going to be a scratch-built mm. project with my laser and my 3D printer. Mm-hmm. So um, basically, I've... I, you know, I got, I think I, I don't know. Did I talk to you? Have I talked to you about my 3D printer that I started? I was going to ask you about that. So why don't you give an introduction to your 3D printer? Well, I, uh, I've been interested in 3D printing for quite some time, but I am, am really interested in the resin 3D printers, but mm-hmm. I didn't want to dive into that because they're a little more expensive. The resin's a little more expensive as a whole. Mm-hmm. So I decided I would get a Ender 3, which I got a hold of for uh, about 210 bucks, mm-hmm. something like that, and decided that I needed to learn how to 3D CAD draw, which is nothing like 2D CAD drawing. Mm-hmm. And that has been a uh, an experiment in learning. Um, but if you had some skill with 2D CAD, you can, you can do it. It's not impossible. But basically honing my skills in 3D and then printing it now because of that and I and I got this Ender 3 I actually have found more uses for the 3D as an extruder for tools mm. um I for instance I've been uh, I redesigned all my uh, uh, servo holders for for turnouts and now have a, a really simple design that works extremely well and I only had to go through I don't know five, six prototypes to finally get <laughs> one that worked. Yeah. But it was a good experiment in just learning to draw in 3D. So the 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 buildings that we're building were, were just kind of all tying this together. And, and I really found that the 3D printer was really helpful. And I've done things like refrigeration units, mm. air conditioning units, mm. uh, pipes, elbows with or pipes, you know, t- grabbing simple Shoot, I've, I've even printed a few pipes myself, said, well, I don't want to cut this out of plastic. I'll just print the whole thing up. Yes. Uh, so kind of doing those types of things. And uh, the other thing I found really helpful was uh, on Longmont, I needed a dock. Uh, it was a complete cement dock. And I thought, you know, I could just draw that up in 3D and just print it as one complete unit and just mm. attach it to the building instead of doing something, you know, having to scratch it out of plastic or wood or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it worked extremely well. Uh, it's really handy. So those type of things for an extruding printer I find really helpful. I did experiment a little with printing people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the extruder works really well if you're probably working at S scale or larger for yes, people. Yes. But HO and smaller, it just it doesn't have a chance. And that's where I think the uh, the SLAs or the, the resin 3D mm. printers were really shined. They're and really... amazing. They're absolutely amazing for that stuff. My coworker has one, and uh, I frequently kick him figures. A question to you, however. Have you, have you heard Craig Biscar's rap on this podcast and various other podcasts associated with adjusting n- nozzle size and uh, yep. improving belt yep. drives and this kind of Have you experimented with that at all? Actually, uh, I was going to say, I spent $200 on my Ender 3 and then spent another $200 modifying it and getting it to where I wanted it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, I was, had listened to Craig. I think he was on the Mike and Scotty mm-hmm. show. And I think he was talking about nozzle sizes. And I was uh, printing up some, uh, well, they're ammonia tanks for ammonia air conditioning or refrigeration units. 
And I had printed it with a 0.04 or 0.4 nozzle. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, Craig said if I use a two, it might work a little better. And sure enough, it did. Um, and it worked extremely well. It's still not perfect, but from two feet away from the edge of the table, mm. nobody's going to see the difference. Mm. It just works perfectly well. So, yeah, no, Craig, Craig has, I've listened to him a few times and going, mm, there's an idea. Maybe I'm going to try that. So it is interesting. And I'm glad that you noted this because certainly when Craig was talking on my recording, I was similarly doing the math in my head. So you pay $200 for the 3D printer, and then, as you know, <laughs> you add $200 worth of additional stuff. Look, if it improves it more than, a, you know, if it improves it more than double, which it appears to do, certainly, in oh, stuff yeah. that you both are saying, then it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think it's interesting, actually, these printer manufacturers that are intentionally building, you know, like entry level with the view that people will then customize them. It seems to be a, a very smart market. It is, and and, and uh, I would say that you know really uh, uh, half of that budget for upgrading, I simply upgraded in just an injector, and it literally took me minus the print time for the bracket I had to print. Uh, it took me fifteen minutes to do. It, it's not that complicated. It's very easy. So if somebody's looking at that, don't be intimidated by you know you have to upgrade it. Um, I used it for three months without upgrading anything really until I got comfortable enough to do a couple upgrades. So pretty good. Mike. I'll share that. Very yeah. good. So in terms of upcoming stuff, for the, I, I, I'm not really sure if we kind of covered the, the future projections. What are you, what are you looking for? You know, when, when things start getting cool again, where would you like to be? I, uh, well, summertime for us sometimes is a little more better because we have time off, but we've had a real slowdown in working on the layout, mainly because of the building projects that mm -hmm. we've been doing, you know, building the buildings. I, I think uh, for those people who haven't seen the layout, to kind of give you an idea of what we're looking at, the building that Sean's building, the uh, sugar mill uh, steam house, is probably eight inches wide by 30, 30 inches. So mm. these are these are large these are large buildings, mm. and, and this building in particular, not counting the smokestack, is 12 inches tall. Gosh. If you put the smokestack in addition to that, the smokestack is uh, 20 inches tall. Mm. So these are large buildings, and the Longmont Foods I'm doing is about six and a quarter, six and three quarters wide by 33 inches and is... I think it's 14 inches tall. So mm. these are not small buildings by any stretch. And and that was really one of the goals I had with building. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to build a large layout was I wanted to make the trains and the buildings be somewhat proportional to one another. Certainly. You know, most of the smaller layouts we see, and it's not a criticism of the, you know, they buy the kits yep. and you find buildings that are the size of a of a box car. Well, why would the railroad <laughs> service a building that's that small? It's the joys of modern so, railroading, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, you know, and I don't I don't criticize anyone for doing that Certainly. because that's what I did. Yes. So by working in those smaller layouts, I did the same thing that everyone else did. But just one of the reasons, you know, people are why do you want a bigger layout? Well. Running tr bigger trains, there's one of the excuses that people have. But for me, it was really 
it never seem appropriate to see mm. uh, a locomotive back up two boxcars to a building that was just slightly bigger than the two boxcars. Yes. So those projects, um, I know Sean has been working on the sugar mill for now about a month and a half. And again, this is a paper building. So he's got to build the bones and then print the paper out. And then he's got to line all the paper up. And he's got to figure out how all these seams are going to fit together because this is not a kit. This is mm. all scratch built stuff. Certainly. So, so that takes Sean quite a bit of time. And for me, the same with the laser. I, you know, the Longmont Foods, matter of fact, I was thinking about, because uh, I, I think you asked, and I think a couple other people asked if I was going to do a video on, you know, what it would take to actually scratch build something with the laser and all that. And Longmont Foods, I think, is a simple enough building mm. that, uh, that, that I could do that in a reasonable amount of time. And, uh, and thanks to Mr. Slater, who handed me uh, some important drawings so I could actually do the Longmont Foods. That was really helpful. So that those type of things are just help me move forward, and then in turn I can share these in the video. And that's so for the layout. I think the the goal is to get Longmont done uh, this uh, by the uh, the fall this this summer. Over the summer, we should have that whole area completed. I'm hoping to have the last of the houses built. Uh, soon they're they're in various construction states but that will occur and then this fall that should be done and once that's done uh and the the sensors are in i think we're going to have our first actual operation it might be as simple as moving a train out of denver yard over to longmont and back but that's what we're heading towards so we're, we're getting to that point and and finally after five years we're starting our first operation. So. Wonderful. Wonderful. Mike, thank you very much for calling in. We do have, as you know, Mike's later on the call, but always a pleasure chatting. And, yeah, look, I, my view is that whatever you document, particularly with video, just touches so many people and actually moves the hobby forward. So thank you very much for all your efforts. Thank you very much for all your learning experiences, and it's a pleasure, as always, to chat with you today. Thanks, Tom. We'll talk to you later. I'd like to welcome on a gentleman who I always have the luxury of, of so many different topics. Mike, I did want to start with a really serious topic, and this is actually for the listeners as well, so it's, it's good that we have the chance to chat today. As some of you may know, the reason that Model Rail Radio is here is because for years, 23 years now, I have worked on a simulation project called Noble Ape, and I started podcasting talking about Noble Ape, and... I did a live call-in show associated with other folks that wrote these kind of simulations. For the past two years, an uh, individual has conducted what I think is loosely called, well, I would refer to it as an intellectual property rights assault, which just means he's done things with Noble Ape, and he's stopped Google and all the other electronic services from picking up my project. He's also done a number of really curious things and things that have impacted, for want of a better term, my professional career. So for the past two years, I've had this experience. My wife, my long-suffering wife, has experienced this with me. And we have talked about, for a variety of different reasons, what we need to do in the future to stop this kind of thing from happening. In particular, what to do with not just the stuff that I've done with the simulation, but also with things like model rail radio. So this conversation was in part generated by my wife's concern. We are drafting a bunch of different documents and things like that. 
But I think certainly the late Ryan Anderson provides an example of what probably needs to be in place even for podcast producers. The direction that this thing will take is probably some means of holding this intellectual property, some trust, which means that if someone in the future were to try to, you know, take this away or do damage or this kind of stuff, that that wouldn't be so much of an issue. And there are various legal ways that you can put these protections in. But I did want to raise it in particular with you, Mike Slater, because you are one of the core members of Model Rail Radio in terms of the importance of this thing, you know, has, has taken uh, in your life and as you've talked about it. And if not that anything were to happen to me, although if you saw photographs from various shows, you might be concerned, but not that anything is going to happen to me in the future uh, immediately, but I'd like to have the things in place to protect things like Model Rail Radio um, from, you know, potential assaults, but also from the potential that, you know, the traffic in the Bay Area is pretty horrible. I have actually lost co-workers to, to road traffic accidents and various other things. If anything were to happen, that this thing was still in place and maintained in a fashion where other folks such as Mike and you know, other folks could still use, utilize, produce and put out model rail radios as they go forward in the future. So, Mike, I will have a more direct and more frank conversation with you at some later stage. But I just wanted to let the listenership know that this is something that I take very seriously and something I'm working on currently. And hopefully there'll be something to describe this thing going forward. But I just wanted to give you a heads up, Mike. Oh, not a problem. I think that something that we can work with. And I know there's probably other individuals that would work with me on keeping the show going. Yes. So it's not just associated with fatalism. It's also associated just with making sure that this, this, there's a spirit to model rail radio, which I've talked about, um, particularly in the you know, NMRA talk. And I know you want me to, to come to a local um, that you're organizing, a, a regional that you're organizing, and give a similar talk. So I have a lot of interest in providing the, the blueprint to how to do this thing to as many people as possible with the view that you create a community out of goodwill and good faith. And unfortunately, the folks that are, you know, in various points in their careers and what have you will try to utilize that good faith and goodwill uh, for their own endeavors. And that has been the experience which I've had for the past two years, which has not been pleasant in any way, shape or form. But certainly I would never want this to happen to, you know, Model Rail Radio or the folks that I've brought together through this thing. More civilized topic, Mike Slater. You're, you're not yet the president of the NMRA, right? But moving in that direction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm. I'm still as as the the date of this recording. I'm still the the interim superintendent of the Wise Division. Very good. Uh, the um, the results. Well, I should put it this way: the the voting has been closed now for I think about a week, and uh, the results will be at our annual membership meeting, which would be the uh, the twenty seventh, right? Not twenty seventh, twenty eighth of this month. As, as the show is recorded. Mm. So the next recording, because uh, nobody was running against me unless there was a un, unknown writing uh, campaign that I'm, that I'm unaware of, <laughs> I, I, I should be voted in as the superintendent of the WISE division. Um, as far as uh, any higher offices within the NMRA, I, <laughs> I'm not uh, seeking or nor wanting... Very good. Any higher offices, but uh, uh, the as far as my uh, 
run as far as the the interim superintendent. Um, I've had good long conversations with Clark Kooning, uh, which is a great asset of, of mm. knowledge and uh, direction. And um, I've had many people uh, volunteer within my division. We're going to be trying some new things within our division. Mm. We're going to be doing uh, a railroad prototype modelers meet. I've had several individuals from other divisions uh, volunteering to do um, to help out with uh, doing clinics and also wanting to come to our division meet. In fact, uh, uh, the Dumblers, um, uh, they're uh, with the Winnebago Land uh, Division. Actually, no, not Winnebago. Winnebago Land's north of us. Uh, the division uh, uh, south of us are involved with and. Uh, uh, they've even offered to help uh, with some of the aspects of creating the flyers for the Ooh. the RPM meet. Uh, so it's uh, getting great help from other divisions also with uh, putting this event on together. And one of the things that uh, I will be contacting here this weekend, uh, I talked to another individual that's the, on the board of directors for the South Central Wisconsin division, Ooh. and they do a joint meet with the rock river division and they've he said that they'd be more than welcome to turn it in from a a by division uh, meet once a month or for one time a year to a a tri division meet so it's i'm reaching out to the neighboring divisions and and trying to do these joint meets um main reason is to a, a it's a great way to share new ideas with other people within the nmra and b it um would take the pressure off of uh, trying to figure out clinics for at least one one meeting month out of the year by mm-hmm. tag teaming with another division and and doing that type of stuff. It's in terms of this as being potentially used by other other you know regions and with the NMRA. What's the physical distance between these various places? I mean, is it well, an hour an hours drive north and hours drive south? Is that the distinction? Is it three hours? What's the difference? Well, for for a prime example, the Rock River Division, they normally have their their meets uh, in the Rockford, Illinois area. Mm. The South Central Wisconsin Division, they typically have their meets in the Madison, Wisconsin area. So, for for example, for us either driving from like Metro Milwaukee area to to Madison, it would be probably about an hour and a half. Mm. Okay. The uh, Rockford would probably be closer to about a two hour drive for people in the Metro Milwaukee area. So not, not a great distance. Um, one of the things I brought up with, uh, at our board meeting is we have a, um, a uh, person that organizes uh, bus trips and we, we organize a bus when the Madison, uh, group has their yearly train show kind of along the lines of train fest. We organize a, a charter bus, uh, for our members to, uh, be be able to sign up for and pay a little bit of a fee to take the bus to to the Madison show, and we Ooh. we do a similar thing to a, a train show once a year down in uh, DuPage, Illinois. Uh, that's a fairly large swap meet, and I kind of made the recommendation for this this particular joint uh, tri meet with the other divisions. Uh, we could also easily organize a, a bus trip for our division members to, so they're not having to drive to this meet. We can organize a, a bus to uh, bus all of our interested division members uh, to these uh, tri-meets. Wonderful. Wonderful. 
Wonderful. Do you get a sense that other areas of the NMRA are going to do similar things? Is this a commonplace, or are you guys really leading the charge associated I'm, with I'm bringing not sure. groups together? I'm not sure if other uh, divisions are doing this. I think we're fairly lucky that uh, our, as far as our square mileage uh, for the size of the divisions, we're we're fairly small in size as far as like the Wise mm-hmm. Division and the South Central Wisconsin is actually probably as far as square mileage of area is probably maybe two to three times the size. I'm not sure the the size of the uh, uh, the Rock River Division, but there's a lot of I would say smaller square mileage divisions within our region, mm. um, like the Winnebago, which is north of us. Uh, they're actually fairly fairly large. They go from our northern edge of uh, our division all the way up into the upper peninsula of Michigan. Mm. So they're a fairly large uh, square mileage uh, division. Uh, but a lot of their monthly meets are either done in the Green Bay, Wisconsin area or the uh, what's known as the Paper Valley uh, <laughs> area, which would include like Appleton, Nina, mm. Wisconsin. So that's where most of their, their meets are. Uh, so that's not that fairly, uh, uh, far out of the way. But what a lot of times what we could do also is we could look at if we're going to be doing a, a joint meet with like, for example, the Winnebago land, mm. we could have one of our meets on the northern fringes of our boundary. So it's not that far for them to drive down to us. And in turn, you know, we're kind of almost meeting the halfway point. Hmm. So that's things we have to work out with, and I have to do communication with the other divisions. But uh, so far with the the neighboring division to the west of us, um, we have good uh, groundwork in place. And I've personally known the superintendent of the uh, – that's now the current superintendent to the division south of us for some time. So I don't think that will be an issue of doing something like that uh, with them also. A question for you, Mike Slater, as, yeah. as, a, as a migrant to this country. You mentioned that it's called the Winnebago Land Division. Is Winnebago yes. actually a place, or is it just a name that they've chosen? I mean, I know I'm obviously familiar with the car, but is it named? Is the car named after a place as well? Um, I'm I'm trying to think offhand. <laughs> uh, I believe there is a uh, Winnebago. Uh, Wisconsin or Alexander, it might be a river or a lake that's okay, good to know. named Winnebago. Good to know. And as far as how these divisions or regions have gotten their names, um, that was probably way before my time. I know, uh, for example, when uh, bef- the Wise Division, which is the Wisconsin Southeastern Division, we mm-hmm. just use Wise Certainly. kind of as our, our shortcut for the name. Uh, that was actually formed after the Midwest uh, region. So for a lot of times, the regions were around before the divisions were around. So as far as how, how they all got their names. <laughs> I had to ask. I just had to ask. Thank you. Much, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you offhand. <laughs> not a problem. Not a problem. Always a pleasure chatting, Mike. I'm going to reach out not just to you, but to a number of folks that have been uh, actively involved with Model Rail Radio. And thank you very much, Mike Deverell, for, for giving the thumbs up to this idea as well, because um, certainly my view is that this whole thing needs to be free and open, and I just wanted to give a degree of candor associated with the stuff that's coming up. Uh, but I'll certainly be reaching out to uh, to folks such as uh, Mike Devroll and obviously 
a wide variety of other participants in the recording to get their general sense because I mean I don't want to do anything that would alienate the community in any way shape or form and I think uh, certainly this is not intended to be that thing it unfortunately needs a level of protection in this day and age which um, when I started this thing nearly 10 years ago Mike Slater it's been that long I didn't think any of this would be necessary but unfortunately I've had Really interesting set of experiences over the past couple of years. So, yeah, one has to change problem. one's philosophy occasionally. Yep. And, <laughs> and I just want to give one little quick uh, train fest update for mm. the 2020 year. Uh, we now currently have two European layouts Ooh. that are are signed up to come to train fest. And if there's any other uh, groups or layouts that are interested in bringing their their layout stateside for the uh, the 49th anniversary of Train Fest, which will be billed as an international show of layouts. Uh, feel free to contact me at uh, Mike at ModelRailRadio.com. And uh, we'll be, I'll be more than happy to forward your information to Ken Jelensky, which is our Train Fest uh, chairman. And his email address can be found at TrainFest.com if anybody wants to contact him directly. But um, I'd love to see layouts from Australia. Uh, from other portions of the world come uh, to train fest and uh, uh, we're also looking for any uh, moderating manufacturers that would love to help mm. sponsor the travel costs of uh, these layouts maybe some of the european countries could figure out ways of doing we could figure out a way of doing a joint container uh, shipping Certainly. costs and that for uh, bringing the layouts over but uh so far, we have two layouts that I've heard of. I don't know the names of the layouts, but uh, but I know we have one for Shirley from from uh, Great Britain, and I'm not sure where the other one is coming from in Europe. Wow. Mike, yeah. a pleasure as always. A pleasure as always to catch up with you. Please do start on the call, and if anything comes up, you know what to do. Yep, I'll I do. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. I'd like to welcome the gentleman who I, last time we had the chance to tell, you know, it was all garden, because you were out in your garden, I seem to recall. Wonderful chat. Can you introduce right, the, right. the stuff that you were doing as well in the hobby, not in the garden, perhaps? Or if there's a garden update, please feel free to provide a garden update. Too. No, we'll skip the garden for now. I've been focusing mostly on um, an OM30 layout that's Ooh. going to represent, well, yeah, is, is intended to represent the... Um, Oahu Railway and Land Company, and there's a branch over there that ran shays up toward the uh, well, the pineapple fields and then the Schofield Barracks up there in the center of Oahu. And so this has been really exciting getting started. I'm, I'm actually up here now working on my staging yard. Mm. So, uh, and then, you know, most of my hobby has been um, HO throughout most of my life until I abandoned the use of my old uh, drafting studio up above my my workshop and so i'm up here and i have a, a sloping ceilings and it's been challenging but um the on30 is really amazing although o scale is really really large it's something new for me i'm sure that others have had this challenge trying to figure out it how to get o scale into the remarkably, same space i mean it shows remarkably well certainly i think more people have been converted to o scale and on30 specifically through seeing modular show layouts in certainly in my area and it's one of the interesting things that when people see it visually, they immediately think, why haven't I thought about this earlier? I mean, it, it's, it's such a no brainer in terms of, you know, HO size track with O level oh, yeah. detail 
That, oh, it's uh, amazing. Yeah, it, it clearly, and it, just in terms of density of people, I, I haven't had the opportunity of going to UK or Australian shows, although I periodically see videos, but certainly in my area, ON30, Z-scale to a lesser extent, but ON30 will always get the crowds. Yeah, well, I'm, I've been doing this for some time now. In fact, I, I think that I got excited when I first saw some ON30 trains running at a uh, National Narrow Gauge Convention, and they were all batteries. And I thought, well, how do I get involved in that? So I don't know if I mentioned last time, but I've been trying to figure out, you know, battery-powered locomotives, uh, wireless control of those, uh, how to charge them in a real efficient way. And there's all sorts of things out there now. So it's been really, really fun. And I enjoyed that aspect of the hobby a great deal. In fact, I think maybe building the road is an opportunity for me to play around with electronics and signaling and mm. battery on board controls. So, yeah, this is everything about it. I really enjoy the O scale. It gives you so much more space. And they have a presence. You're right. They, they get your attention. So, in turn, I mean, you, you, had a, you had a prior layout, right, that you drew upon to get to this point? I did, and it was uh, a fictitious thing that really does. The idea was it was going to be a plantation railway that hauled sugar cane and, and bag sugar, and and it represented everywhere in the, in Hawaii and, mm. and nowhere at the same time. So after a while, and finding myself totally closed in with little narrow passageways to get in and around the layout, uh, you know, I think some of the areas are like twenty inch wide, and I just. I just got frustrated. And, you know, actually, last time I called in, I'd only been out of surgery for um, oh yeah, uh, for, for like a day or two. And yes. so my voice was very odd, uh, had had a bicycle crash and at any rate. Um, so I was sitting out in the garden trying to enjoy some sun. <laughs> Don't apologize. It was a perfect chat. I, 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 I didn't I, – I mean, aside from the fact that you noted that you'd been out of surgery, I didn't notice any uh, – Anything that would have caused any degree of concern. I had a really good chat. Well, I mean, you and I hadn't spoken since, what, 2015 or something. So, I mean, I generally don't sound like that, you know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought I'd call in and listen today because you always have such fascinating people. And listening to Mike Slater reminded me how uh, isolated I am. And there's so few other modelers. And even though I'm a member of the NMRA. Do you you really think that is the case? I mean, what I found found in my travels – yeah. Is that there are, and for folks who are listening in, are you on the Big Island? I am on the Big Island, yeah. Okay, for folks listening in who might be on the Big Island, the Facebook group, hit me up, tom at modelrailradio.com. Uh, my perspective on this hobby is that um, the terrorist network is the wrong way to describe it. There are a bunch of sleeper cells throughout this hobby <laughs> that are all over the place. That you would never, Careful, yeah. You'd never know we're active until you actually got there and started. I mean, you, you guys have... You do have a train show on the Big Island, right? No, no. In no? fact, I'm not aware of any other hobbyists on the Big Island anymore. Gosh. Um, my friends that have been involved had either passed away or um, or moved off island. Mm. And so, I'm. I, you know, that reminds me. I, I got excited about the idea of, of meeting with some of these people. And I, I've set up a, a charter for the uh, what remains of the Oahu Railway. It was called the Hawaiian Railway Society. And so they have a passenger car that's been fully restored that was um, built by the owner, um, Benjamin Franklin Dillingham. So mm-hmm. we're going to charter this passenger car from the 1890s to go out on a charter ride. And there's going to be, I think there's 14 chairs. So I'm spreading the word. If anybody's out there listening, let me know and get in touch with me. And I, I want to include you. Mm. So I think the 
there's more people on Oahu than there are anywhere else in the state that are into, you know, building motor railways. Interesting. Interesting. So do you have a, I mean, in terms of getting this thing together, what's, what's your sense of the upcoming months for your own? <laughs> I, I go in fits and starts maybe because of the weather, but, um, I, I want to get out of the visible portion of the layout, uh, you know, in the next few months and have trains running by the end of the year. The, you know, it's frustrating because I really want to get to the part that is fascinates me. I like mm. to build scenery, yes. you know, and I like to see the, the buildings and structures. And, and I've been using something called SketchUp Photo, uh, photo Match. Yes. Are you familiar with that? Yep, certainly. So using, using Photo Match, I can recreate three-dimensional structures from photographs from the you know early 1900s late 1800s and it's been fascinating i need to figure out some way now to have my cricket cut out the templates for Ooh, yes yeah yeah it's interesting and I'm, sorry continue. i don't have you have you experimented with uh 3d printing at all because i'm i'm looking at those for detail parts and windows and whatnot so my exposure to 3d printing comes primarily through my co-worker who has a resin bed printer and shapeways and I was ah. just thinking, I need to make an investment in Shapeways coming up. I use it, I mean, <laughs> it may seem um, heresy to say it on this particular podcast, but my primary <laughs> hobby, aside from writing simulation and editing podcasts and all this other stuff, is um, with wargaming figures. And right. I use uh, Shapeways quite a bit for that, and also my co-worker. Um, and I need to print up a bunch of civilians in the near future. But for me... Shapeways is really eccentric, and if you get into the eccentricity of Shapeways, it's like, you know, you wait, you put something out there, and three weeks later, maybe four weeks in some circumstances, you yeah. get a box No, pack. I've done that. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying, and it's fascinating. I, I found some picture, um, some objects on Shapeways where people had scanned life-size figures dressed in period costumes, mm, yep, and then certainly. they print them out at whatever scale you like, yep. and that got me thinking... That's amazing, right? Yes. It's so difficult to find anything in the in the Edwardian or Elizabethan period that's dressed appropriately, especially people with color. You know, they're just not out there. Yes. It is amazing the quality of figures, particularly in niches, as you've noted, the Edwardian figures and things that are coming through. I think what you have is a need where there's been an absence. <laughs> you find this with Australian prototype model railroading stuff as well. When there's been an absence, the ability to have the technology in place will create a flood, as you say, of really interesting things. Um, so, yeah, certainly Shapeways. But my view is actually the stuff that, uh, you know, Craig Biscayer and Mike Deverell are talking about associated with um, basically doubling your investment in a low-end 3D printer to make it do amazing things. I mean, I'm almost on the cusp of that with regards to my Shapeway purchases. I'm, I'm still in the... <laughs> under a hundred dollars a quarter <laughs> ratio with shapeways. When I move into the two hundred dollars a quarter, which may or may not happen in the next few months, then obviously right. one of these printers then becomes immediately like a no brainer. So yeah, I'm, well, I'm looking. To, sorry, I'm looking. You're to the talking about the filament type. The, yes. Or, or, yeah. Or, no, I yeah, think that um, that poses. I mean, obviously for figures that's more difficult. But I mean, if the stuff that Craig is talking about is is present, then you're getting on the cusp of. I'm looking for you know civilians backgrounds basically. Yeah, but sure. you're you're getting on the cusp of it being a relative no-brainer, and because these are you know less detailed figures, but fill in you know the gaps in certain circumstances. So yeah, I'm certainly watching this space. 
Um, being a married man, it's always interesting bringing new technology into the house. But that being said, I'm not sure if you have any knowledge of quilting, but my wife has an 18-foot-long uh, quilting machine downstairs. Oh, my. So I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the realm where if I smuggled in a small 3D printer... It wouldn't probably draw too much attention. <laughs> I think my wife might question my investment, but uh. she, she can't really. She she raises horses, so oh. um, by comparison, her hobby is a hundred times more expensive. Yeah. So uh, I, all I got to do is point outside. Very um, good. Maybe not. But on the other yeah. hand, you know, you're right. There's a certain level of cost that you have to justify for yourself. And and I've been using Shapeways, and I'm extremely pleased. But mm. I'd like to be able to experiment this with on my own, and that's why I've been, that's why I asked. You know, if you if you've done any of it. I have the luxury of a coworker who prints a lot of models, but is always looking for those downtime printed models. It's an interesting space, and like I say, if I'm putting more than two hundred dollars a quarter into this thing, then immediately the three D printer becomes a no brainer. Um, but as yeah, it has yeah. been currently, I mean, I occasionally get things printed in brass through Shapeways. And that obviously is is you know on the much higher more expensive, end. but yeah, yeah. you know relatively speaking, it still hasn't pushed me into the two hundred dollars a quarter range because I need them very very infrequently. So you know it is interesting, but I think getting friends together. I mean, as I have my coworker, if if applicable, if a, a community group can you know buy one of these things and then start sharing the load. Um, but as you've noted, your isolation. Um, makes it more interesting. In terms of, I mean, what kind of stuff would you 3D print if you had a 3D printer? Well, I was thinking, besides figures, obviously, that was going to take a lot of time mm. just to design. But, I mean, I'm I'm an architect by trade, and so the <laughs> idea of printing uh, windows in, in architectural details is really appealing to me. You know, those uh, fancy columns and, 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 and knee braces, all kinds of things like that could be really easily done, I think. I, I don't know how easy they are in... I didn't mention that I was looking at the photon any cubic one, the, the liquid. And so they are not, I mean, for what I think you get the quality, they're not seeming very expensive to me. Mm. So, I mean, and the quality is amazing, right? So, you know, yes. if, if I get one, I'll definitely, I'll, you know, post something on the website and show you what's going on. But I, that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about, the architectural details that, mm -hmm. to, you know, to scratch build and and do with repetition is just, you know, tedious. <laughs> yes, most definitely. Most definitely. Well, a pleasure but, catching up, Neil. I, like I said, I didn't, I didn't detect any concern the last recording. So well, I'm glad you, you're feeling you. better. I'm glad that's no, the first I am, thing I should I'm, say. And I'm, and I'm always enjoy listening to the show, and, yes. and I wanted to uh, listen in and see if Mike calls in from Washington because I'm hoping that I can meet him when I'm up that way uh, at the. The Portland show. And uh, by the way, I'm going to be down in your area for the National Narrow Gauge Convention in, in September. So we so are I don't also know if you going plan to, be to attend. Looked, but, yeah. For other reasons, we are going to be in the Sacramento area. And I just nudged my wife because I said to my wife in advance, we're not going to be in Sacramento in that time frame. She said, no, we're not. And then, then something else came up and we're yeah. definitely going to be in Sacramento. So, yeah, no, I'm I'm looking forward to it. And my hope that's is the that, um, second week of September, I think. I believe that's yeah, that's when it is. Um, yeah, no, yeah. No, be nice to see you again. Yeah, absolutely. And and by the way, Hawaiian quilting is huge, right? <laughs> you so. don't need to convert my look. My wife has been dragging. It's not even. I I suspect one day I'll just be hit on the back of the head and end up in your part <laughs> of the world. 
because yeah, no one is, well, is greater I, a fan of Hawaii than my wife is. So. Well, you can you can uh, entice her by saying, you know, I know this gentleman Neil Erickson has a small inn on the Big Island of Hawaii is offered to host us. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's airline <laughs> ticket right there. I I need to be bracing myself. That I'd, I'd be knocked out and just appear in your backyard in a few hours. You know, six hours, I think, is the time frame my wife has to. Uh, so, Neil, uh, a pleasure to chat. Good to know that you actually have that resource because, yeah, certainly, uh, that's wonderful uh, to know that you, you have that resource as well. Uh, oh, it's good fun meeting people from all over the world. I've hosted a number, uh, a couple of folks that I've met, but a number of people, but two guys in particular from the Model Road Hobbyist mm. uh, group uh, have come over and spent some time here, and, and I hope they enjoyed their time. It seems like it. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, and please don't don't be shy to hit me up, and I look forward to listening in the rest of the show. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jill. Pleasure chatting as always. Really interested to see what direction you take this ON30 layout, because like I say, it is a it is a, sc- a scale that I think is growing in, in interest level, or really has, has reached a, a substantial interest level. Uh, based on all the strengths that we've noted, so yeah. Well, based on the based on the rising prices, I wonder if it's going to stay that way. Well, yes, that's always the thing. But it, it can't be like N scale where they just stop making track for like three or four <laughs> years and then just wonder <laughs> right. what has happened to it. So let's just move on from that. A pleasure chatting yeah, yeah, with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, good thing I lay my own track. But okay, yes. so you know, no worries there. But anyway, <laughs> thanks again, Tom. Talk to you soon. Take care. I'd like to welcome on a gentleman who has a wonderful Skype name, but apparently his name, his, his, his legal name at least, is Joel Middleton. A pleasure to have a chance to chat with your model rail radio today. Could you please introduce your model railroading interests? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so initially I was into um, aircraft modeling, uh, airfix and so on, mm. um, and then started getting into dioramas. Um, saw a place called Pendon in a, in a modeling book. Um, went there and sort of discovered the world of um, model railways. So to the context for people who haven't been, it's um, a large sort of 100 foot by 30 foot slice of modelled English countryside in 176th scale. Um, and then from then onwards, I've been obsessed. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, did the standard thing, sort of uh, got a train set, uh, had a thing under my bed until I uh, uh, was in secondary school and then stopped when I went to university and discovered cars and girls and so on and uh, came back to it. Now I've got a house. So uh, just getting back into it now. And My wife is my from wife. Southern California, but she's an Anglophile and obviously I love spending time in England as well. What is the quintessential element of the English countryside that you look to model? Okay, so... Um, and the the model I referenced earlier is set in Oxfordshire, which is sort of where the south becomes the Midlands. It's mm-hmm. um, sort of rolling chalk hills, and it's it's modelled absolutely fantastically by an Australian, actually, oddly, um, originally. Uh, I have been inspired largely by that, so I've I, I guess sort of like modelling anyway. You just go and see what the area you want is like, and and try and replicate that as much as possible. If I could talk from my own experience. Yep. There are elements of scale in the English countryside. I had a somewhat surreal experience of going to Hobbiton. Hobbiton is a tourist destination in New Zealand, which creates the Lord of the Rings kind of uh, Hobbit area. But the thing yeah. that struck me about that was it was a 
a kind of slightly skewed version of the English countryside. And the things that I think are amazing about English villages is just the sameness but uniqueness that each one has. And also the fact that the community, even in the worst possible weather conditions, the kind of community spirit is represented in, you know, people having gardens and these kind of things, but also there are sometimes very shared community elements through gardens, and you get the sense that while there are individuals, there is also a kind of collective whole that communicates itself through a variety of different features. The bonding that exists in these villages um, is really something that I find fascinating. I have a, you know, a variety of people that I talk to about the English countryside on a periodic basis, but there is something relatively unique. And looking to model that, I mean, are we talking vegetable patches? Are we talking glass houses? Are we talking what kind of things do you think are so important associated with modelling? Uh, yeah, absolutely, all of the above. So um, in the the period I do sort of English countryside in is uh, sort of pre-war, um, mm. although to all intents and purposes, most villages haven't really changed a great deal in that <laughs> time. And absolutely, um, you've got the, um, the the council allotments, uh, yeah, so communal garden type things, and there's always a church, a pub, mm-hmm. um, a load of houses, and, and not a great deal else. I guess, I mean, it's it's interesting to hear the description from from your perspective having seen something else because I've, I've seen very little else you know mm. sort of western europe and that's very similar <laughs> so it's it's yeah so it's a perspective i'd never really thought of sort of the um the uh, the the community spirit and so on um, yes i mean i think certainly so- the thing that i find i was in the uk a couple of months ago and i went to northwich which is a town in the northwest that i'd never been to before just by chance, it's about 20 minutes away from where we used to live. And mm-hmm. it's got a canal, it's got a, a centre of town, it's got all the usual, you know, small shops that you associate. But each, and if you go over to Macclesfield, which is, you know, again, probably 20-odd minutes drive in another direction, you have a canal, you have a few other things, but they re- it's rearranged perfectly. Um, you have, as you say, you know... Uh, allotments that people kind of collectively work on everyone seems to have a little terrace house that has you know something going on um and it is just amazing the way in which you get both to a certain extent the same things but you get them rearranged in different ways and different kind of interpretive parts that are you know collectively shown it's interesting to try and distill this in in words um because one of the things that i think is fascinating is you say people that don't live in the UK, and similarly for US prototypes, people that don't live in the US, make some of the most interesting and detailed and, as you say, insightful layouts of these areas because they are looking to to capture distinct elements that make something, you know, a kind of collective whole. So Absolutely. I always like to talk to people that model, you know, certain things. And as you say, for you, it's just a visual thing, right? It just looks right. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, very, very difficult to, as you, as you say, sort of express that in words. Um, although, I, I, yeah, I do take your point about the sort of the character changing um, sort of from Macclesfield, which I sort of cycle over to periodically to mm. this side of the peaks and, and further south. And um, no, it's a fascinating, yeah, fascinating visual that I hadn't really considered. Yeah. 
trying to reconstruct it in my mind now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something that I, I mean, I think about this in terms of simulation from my, is, is my background. So I think, you know, how do you create a, a quintessential, you know, little town, which is interesting mm. kind of modeling. And as you say, it's interesting, the relationship with the church and the pub, and now the pub is a multifunctional thing. And I think it's always probably been a multifunctional thing, but, you know, the formalities of the post office being separate and these kind of things, increasingly in the UK, you just have these kind of collective conglomerate blobs in, in towns. Obviously, there seems to be like banking and these kind of things that are also necessary, um, maybe some medical services. But the way in which it lays itself out around, you know, waterways or uh, hills or this kind of stuff is fascinating. I mean, the distinction between towns in Yorkshire, which I hadn't had a lot of experience of until um, probably about three years ago, but I went back to Yorkshire uh, this trip as well. I mean, there, there are distinct things in the various areas based in large part on the topology, the, you know, rivers and what have you. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. So in terms of your current modeling, what kind of things are, uh, are fascinating you? What kind of stuff are you working on currently? So too many things, I think, is the the usual, uh, as, along with many other people. And fortunately, I've generally kept things to 176 scale, mm -hmm. um, but across many different gauges. So um, I've dabbled in 009, which comes out slightly more than two foot gauge. Mm -hmm. um, 00, which is the standard uh, British thing of running four millimeter scale models on HO track. Mm -hmm. I've uh, just started doing... P4, which is um, actually to scale. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I've also sort of got a, a bit of a fantasy that I'm just starting to play around with of um, modeling Hong Kong tramways on um, sort of proper scale track as well, so it's 14 Gosh. millimeter gauge. I have at arm's length the, it's written by an Australian, but it's a Chinese uh, model railroading book. And I think the Hong Kong tramways are in that book. Um, uh -huh. It is amazing. It's an amazing time for china taiwan hong kong these areas associated with the hobby and it's something that we haven't been able to really capture on model rail radio effectively aside from occasionally having people like paul brian hancock who unfortunately i don't think he's ever called in but has at least participated when i was in adelaide how do you get access to these models are you just using the internet as a means of sourcing them um, so with the hong kong one i haven't got any further than making well i'm starting to scratch build some uh some buildings mm. and some track. Backman did make a, a double O tram. I'd have to narrow the gauge slightly, but nowhere seems to have it in stock anymore. So I, I think it's going to be a case of scratch building it, but it would just be a, a micro layout and, you know, just to keep me entertained for a couple of years and then move on to the next shiny thing. If I have to scratch build everything, that's not too problematic. Interesting. So because of, because I came from it, from uh, came into model railways um, from a, uh, a modelling background. The the thing I really enjoy is the making of the models. So mm. uh, kit building and scratch building has always been my thing. And I, I would have said until relatively recently that I didn't really have an interest in in operations or anything. Although inspired by uh, this podcast, actually, I uh, have started um, uh, looking into operations more, and I should be going to an operation session on a big layout sort of near well big by our standards in the not too distant future hopefully i think of particularly the military modeling i mean my insight is primarily in military figures 
the the skills and techniques that are coming in from military modeling into the model railroading hobby has been really profound in you know the past decade i mean people are now talking about using vallejo paints and this kind of stuff which you know just makes reasonable sense so i mean in terms of the way you see the crossover coming from military modeling what kind of techniques do you bring into to model railroading from the military hobby so i know i was never particularly good but the acceptance of uh, of good um, acrylic paints, mm-hmm. um, not thinking they're a horrible thing that will never work, and and just sort of I think playing around with plastic card and filler as a basis of most things, knowing that actually if you waste enough time on it, you'll you'll get there in the end. And I think the nice thing about the the military modelling is a lot of the because you start with a kit, you're never never presented with a, a $300 item which you, you're afraid to weather or or to uh, to paint or, or change the shape of because uh, for fear of ruining it because actually you're never playing with that much money. So I think no skill but just a willingness to try things, if that makes sense. Certainly, um, yeah, most definitely, most definitely. Joel, thank you very much for calling into Model Rail Radio today. Do not be a stranger. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean... <laughs> It sounds like you live in the area, or at least part of the area, um, that is familiar to, to me. And although we won't be going back to that part of the world, unfortunately, in the most upcoming trip, certainly in the trip following, I will be back in uh, in the northwest. Always a pleasure to, to put listeners on the map, so to speak, <laughs> where you are. Uh, so don't be a stranger. And please, uh, I'm really fascinated if you have photographs or other things associated with your, um, you know, historical stuff i'm really interested in seeing that kind of stuff so please feel free to post it on the model rail radio facebook group if you're on facebook and uh, it'd be wonderful to see that brilliant thank you very much it's been a real pleasure to listen in to everybody and chat finally yeah i think the plan is to do maybe one in three of the recordings in a uk friendly time so you should be able to call into to future uk friendly shows and uh, provide updates accordingly yeah that'd be absolutely brilliant yeah thank you thank you very much Not at all. Pleasure chatting. I really like these UK-friendly times. It's always nice to to chat with uh, old friends and new friends. And I think really that's the format of Model Rail Radio that I'm trying to uh, distill going forward. It's the 10-year celebration. We've got to do something serious associated with this thing. In fact, it's going to be at the time of the Narragoge Convention. So that seems to be a good epicenter to do something, get-togethers, meals, the usual stuff that seemed to come through this thing. And, yeah, certainly uh, catching up with friends and uh, talking about this hobby and the things outside the hobby as well. Always interesting. To the folks for participating today, thank you very much for putting up with me more than anything. I was up at literally the crack of dawn today to work with the internet fellow and Skype still threw us a bunch of knuckles today so i'm unusually tired and scatterbrained which no doubt will be edited out of the recording but have somehow been able to pull this thing together through pleasant conversations as always thank you very much for the folks who participated today thank you very much for the folks for listening in good morning thank you don good night
Thank you.